0: netcasts you love
1: from people you trust
0: this is twit audio bandwidth for security now is provided by winamp for android the ultimate media player for your desktop and android device featuring wireless sync download it free at winamp.com android Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 279, recorded December 15th, 2010. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 107. Security Now is brought to you by Ford and Voice Activated Sync. Featuring true, hands-free calling, turn-by-turn directions, 911 assist, and more. Available exclusively on Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury vehicles. And by Carbonite. Backing up the files on your PC or Mac is safe and easy with Carbonite. For a free trial plus two free months with purchase, go to Carbonite.com. Offer code TWIT. And by the eco Imagination Challenge from General Electric. GE and its partners are awarding $200 million to ideas that help build the next generation power grid for the 21st century. For more information and to view and comment on ideas, go to ecomagination.com slash challenge. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you online. And boy, I can't think of any better person to do that than Mr. Steve Gibson of GRC.com, the man who found the first spyware. <laughs> it was like a like a dinosaur hunter. Look, spyware. And uh, not only did he he define it, he coined the term spyware, wrote the first anti-spyware program. He's also done all sorts of security goodness for all of us, including Shields Up, his DNS benchmark. Steve, it's good to see you again. I'm I'm sorry I missed last week, but thanks to Tom Merritt for filling in. I think you had a good time.
1: Well, the only problem is, Leo, you missed a really fun and somewhat controversial episode. What would you talk about? We talked about uh, implanting RFID chips in people. And if I were to have one implanted, what would be my minimum requirements from a technology standpoint? What a
0: great subject. I'm sorry. Really, I missed out. Well, I'll have, really. It really neat. Thank goodness it's a podcast. <laughs> I can go yeah. back and listen. We should note that uh, while we will be here next week, that's the 22nd of December. We record on Wednesdays for a Thursday release. We will not be here the following week, the 29th, if you watch live or you download the podcast. But the good news is we're going to repeat the world-famous Portable Dog Killer episode. I can't wait. No, I'm sorry, Ozzy. My dog's in here. He's very upset. Uh-oh. He said, what yeah. are you talking about? <laughs> no, no, Talk it, about his ears perking up normally. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. I, you know, he's a papillon. He, as you saw, he had giant ears. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't think it would kill him, but it might, uh, might give him a headache. He'd jumping under the bed. <laughs> He'd say, get, get out of here. You, you, would, you wouldn't see him for a while. <laughs>
1: I don't know what that sound is, but it's annoying. So, Steve, what are we doing today? Today we've got a Q&A, our number 107th Q&A. Um, we've got, of course, some updates and some news. Uh, one really freaky bit of news that everyone has been tweeting, tweeting me about to make sure I knew about it. And you may have run, run across as all. It just happened, which is the claim that 10 years ago... The developers of the OpenBSD security framework, uh, specifically the IPsec stack in OpenBSD, ten years ago, these developers were paid by the FBI to build backdoors and deliberate side channel leak key leakage into it. So, oh no! Uh, like, and now, is oh. this verified or is this? Well, we're going to talk about it. Uh, it's an interesting story, just broke, like, as we're recording this. Holy cow. Yeah. We
0: also have questions, 12 good questions from our, our listeners.
1: We got some feedback from last week, not surprising, uh, some feedback from the controversial, you know, embedded chip under your skin episode and uh you know
0: there's a, there's a side uh, ch- a story to this rfid and that's something called nfc near field communications i'm sure you know about that but i just got the new uh, google nexus s phone which has an nfc reader built into it yeah and uh it's kind of like our i think it's very similar to rfid of course it's very short range you have to really get up right next to the thing but uh, you can pass the phone over um, a placard or a pay point or whatever, and uh, data is transferred from
1: that pay point into the phone. And apparently very popular in Japan. Near field is interesting. It uses a different set of sort of parameters or terms from the original, I think it was the Schrodinger equations for energy transmission, where normal radio uses one set and has a certain characteristic in terms of distance versus power. Near field uses a, a, a... a different set of 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 equations that essentially creates a an extremely low power, short range con, um, connection which falls off very quickly. So it's it's right. it's different than just like low power RF. It's it's deliberately designed to, to have like a different functional curve. Um, right. And and yeah, I think we could see a lot of that in the future.
0: Very interesting. But let us before we get to our. Uh, our topic at hand and our security updates and all of that. I'd love to mention, if I might, our good friends at Ford, they're up to something kind of interesting. You know, we talk about Ford all the time in the Ford Sync, and you know I'm a Ford fan, and I drive a Ford Mustang, and I've driven most of the Ford vehicles now, but there's one I haven't driven. I've seen, I've played with, I've gotten inside, I've sat in the front seat, but they didn't allow me to drive it, and that's the new Ford Focus, the new 2012 Ford Focus, which will be available for test drive early next year, in Madrid, Spain. And while I would very much like to test drive that, it's going to be you that gets the chance to, if you enter the contest. You go to twitfordfocus.com, and you can find out more. They're asking you to make a video of two minutes or less. And there's two things you should say in that video. Why you should go, you and a friend should go to Madrid <laughs> to test drive the Ford Focus. to Be one of the first to do so. All expense paid trip to Madrid. And why you should Uh, what what your favorite charity is and why Ford should give them $10,000. They're going to give a total of half a million dollars in all, which is really, really cool. Twitfordfocus.com will take you to a Facebook page where you'll get a chance to enter the uh, contest. It is uh, good only through December 31st, so hurry, 2010, hurry and uh, participate. When you get in the Ford Focus, one of the things you'll notice... Is the great my Ford Touch? This is built on Ford Sync. Sync is the technology that I've been singing the praises of for some time. You know, when I, I got the new, as I mentioned, the new Google phone. Of course, first thing you do when you get a new phone, and I can I have a dozen phones now <laughs> set up with the Ford. <laughs> That's kind of nice. You can you you pick which one is the default. So if if all of them are in the car. One will one will will pair up over Bluetooth first, but it can see them all. And you can have one be your phone and one be your Bluetooth audio device, for instance. Uh, sometimes I play from my iPad over Bluetooth audio. Sync gives you full control over what's going on without taking your hands off the wheel or your eyes off the road. You press a button on the wheel, and you could say, play a song, change the temperature call steve gibson at home you you totally control it with your voice the voice recognition is superb really gets the job done and you get to stay connected even when you are doing the most important thing in the car which is driving it the my ford touch then adds the eight inch screen on the center stack the two little screens behind the steering wheel the uh, multi-position uh, touch device it's really really sweet true hands-free calling Turn-by-turn directions, even if you didn't get the advanced GPS package. It's got GPS built into it. Uh, 911 assist and a whole lot more. Sync is available exclusively on Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury vehicles. I want you to go to a Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury dealer and take a look at Ford Sync. Optional in some models, standard in others. And I believe it'll be standard in the uh, the new Ford Focus. Twitfordfocus.com to enter the contest and uh, to find out more about Sync. Sync my ride. Podcast.com. SyncMyRidePodcast.com. podcast. dot com. Okay, Steve. I see we have quite a few uh, little updates
1: here, uh, including you know, Microsoft's Leo, update. You started off saying that you were a fan, and it, it occurs to me that isn't "fan" short for fanatic?
0: Uh, yes, it is. is that what it, I, I thought am it probably a fanatic. was. Fanatic.
1: Yes. Uh, it's you know. There's certain things I'm a fanatic about.
0: <laughs> and Ford has rapidly become one of those things because they've really. I tell you, this has been a a banner year for the uh, the Twit Network and for all of our shows, and the, by great in great part thanks to Ford and our other uh, sponsors Damn. who really helped us. We, you know, we're going to build that. We're moving into that new facility, the ten thousand square foot facility, build all new studios, and all of that's because of our sponsors. So, thank you. Tip of the hat
1: uh microsoft had a december update while i was oh thank goodness finally this was the one we were waiting for and the good news is it is it this ends their updates for the year this being december they've broken their record the total number of updates in any year was in this year in 2010 um this second tuesday of the month which we just had addressed 40 vulnerabilities across 17 different security bulletins. Um, They did fix the zero-day privilege escalation kernel vulnerability, which we've been talking about and waiting for for a couple weeks. So the good news is that's done. That was the one that was frightening people because it had the potential to be a means for malware to install itself as a rootkit, meaning that it would be able to get into your system in a way that after it was in, no... no anti-malware detection technology would have been able to see any longer. So the good news is that's fixed. They fixed a bunch of vulnerabilities. Actually, they completely caught up with all of the vulnerabilities that the Stuxnet worm had been using to get itself installed. Because remember that it was discovered that it was using some that were previously unknown. So that, that... let people to believe that it was pretty sophisticated developers behind behind that worm. So um, absolutely uh, everyone should, as soon as they get a chance, make sure that their copy of Windows is up to date after this Tuesday, which was the la- the latest occurring Tuesday in the month that we could have since the the Wednesday was the first. Um, also just a small side note, and that is that Firefox has jumped itself forward to 3.6.13 and (laughs) 3.5.16. I uh, keep track of these numbers. (laughs) Fixing in the process 12 vulnerabilities, 10 of which uh, were critical. So uh, that was a good move there. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the show, the, the big sort of controversy, and, you know, I'm very much not a... Um, conspiracy follower. So I'm skeptical about all of this until it's been proven. Now, I was skeptical about Stuxnet and the very, very, what I felt were premature claims that this was targeted at Iran. It, of course, as we know, it turned out, once all the evidence was in, that it was almost certainly the case that that worm was de- deliberately targeted at Iran's um, nuclear enrichment centrifuge process control systems and was effective to some degree. So the jury's very much out on the allegations regarding OpenBSD's security framework, or the OSF as it's known, having been deliberately compromised. But but here's what we know. Um, just uh, yesterday... Um, On the OpenBSD tech mailing list, uh, Theo Dirat, R-A-A-D-T, posted um, the following. He said, I have received an email regarding the early development of the OpenBSD IPsec, which is, of course, IP security stack. It is alleged that some ex-developers, parens, and the company they worked for, accepted U.S. government money. ...to put backdoors into our network stack, in particular the IPsec stack, around 2000 to 2001. Since we had the first IPsec stack available for free, large parts of the code are now found in many other projects and products. I have to say this seems suspect because it's open source. Wouldn't somebody notice this backdoor? Well, see, this is the problem. I mean, open source, as we've discussed many times, you have a team who are working on some chunk of this. And first of all, I'm I'm with you in being skeptical. Um, yeah, lem-
0: I, 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 I am not going to believe this story unless I is, is, hear some real
1: uh, well, confirmation so, so of it. Because- the, reason, the, the, the reason this has raised eyebrows is he says over 10 years, uh, the IPsec code has gone through many changes and fixes. So it is unclear what the true impact of these allegations are. The mail came in privately from a person I have not talked to for nearly 10 years. I refuse to become part of such a conspiracy and will not be talking to Gregory Perry about this. Therefore, I am making it public so that, A, those who use the code can audit it for these problems or potential problems I'll throw in, B, those that are angry at the story can take other actions, and see if it is not true, those who are being accused can defend themselves. Of course, I don't like it when my private email is forwarded. However, the little ethic of a private email being forwarded is much smaller than the big ethic of government-paying companies to pay open-source developers, parens a member of a community of friends, to insert privacy-invading holes in software. Now, this is coming, this this
0: accusation came from Theo DeRot, who's the founder of OpenBSD. So it, yeah, that does I mean, lend precisely. it some credibility, so,
1: right? Ex- exactly. So, so he then quotes Gregory Perry's email. Um, Gregory Perry is currently at govirtual.tv. Mm. And the subject was OpenBSD Crypto Framework. And he says, hello, Theo. Long time, no talk. If you will recall... A while back, I was the CTO, so the Chief Technology Officer, at NETSEC and arranged funding and donations for the OpenBSD crypto framework. At the same time, I also did some consulting for the FBI for their GSA Technical Support Center, which was a cryptologic reverse engineering project aimed at backdooring and implementing key escrow mechanisms for smart card and other hardware-based computing technologies. My NDA, my, that's non-disclosure agreement, my NDA with the FBI has recently expired. And I wanted to make you aware of the fact that the FBI implemented a number of backdoors and side-channel key-leaking mechanisms into the OCF which is the OpenBSD crypto framework, for the express purpose of monitoring the site-to-site VPN encryption system implemented by EOUSA, the parent organization to the FBI. Jason Wright, WRIGHT, and several other developers were responsible for those backdoors. And you would be well advised to review any and all code commits by Wright, as well as the other developers he worked with originating from NetSec. I
0: can I can guarantee there are developers, open source developers, looking at all of those commits now. <laughs> and we will know by the end of the day if there's any merit to this or not. We'll sure. know
1: soon. Yeah. He says <laughs> this is also probably the reason why you lost your DARPA funding. <sighs> They more than likely caught wind of the fact that those back doors were present. I mean, here we're in like speculative land, right, so again, right, take right. all of this with a grain of salt, as I do this whole thing until again, until we know more. But reading this, he says they more than likely caught wind of the fact that those back doors were present and didn't want to create any derivative products based upon the same. This is also why several inside FBI folks have recent been have recently been advocating the use of OpenBSD for VPN and firewalling implementations in virtualized environments. For, again, we have no reason to, I mean, this is all speculation. For example, Scott Lowe is a well-respected author in virtualization circles who also, also happens to be on top of the FBI payroll and who has also recently published several tutorials for the use of OpenBSD VMs in enterprise VMware vSphere deployments. Merry Christmas, Gregory Perry, chief executive officer of Go Virtual Education. Wow. So, that's what's known at this point. Um the good news is this has I mean this is really on the radar and has come to the attention of the Open BSD open source community. I'm sure that the people who were involved are being asked um will know more, I'm sure for this podcast next week. Um this just happened and uh it, it, I've been getting tweets and then tons of email, and it's, it's all over the place. Mm. So, you know, uh, now, certainly...
0: Eric Duckman asks in our chat room a, a legit question. Is this only OpenBSD, or was, does this code extend to any other projects?
1: Well, the, 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 you'd have to carefully look at, at where any other IPsec and security framework code came from, um, what Theo is saying is these guys were first. This was ten years ago, and as happens with with open source, sort of by design, you can take the ch- you know chunks of it and and put it in different places. And we see that all the time with open open BSD, um, um, free BSD, NetBSD. You know they've all taken. Overtly And, you know, saying thank you very much, they've taken big chunks of each other's work and incorporated it into their own operating systems. So, so again, it's going to take some time for the community to react to this. The, the problem is that it, and we've, we've, we've spoken of this before, it can be extremely difficult to find these things even when you're looking for them. That is, if they're talking about, you know, for example, side channel leakage of key material. What that's saying is that that when the code was written, the developers who, you know, assuming that this were true, and again, I have no reason to believe it. It sounds very suspect to me. But but the way you would do this, if you were going to, is you would write the code in such a way. For example, that its timing was deliberately a function of the key, which was in use at the time, so that if you knew what had been done, then you would know how to look for subtle variations in the behavior, not overt like um, anything obvious, but Subtle variations, like timing or power consumption, or, or but timing is the most easy to to detect. Where, where if someone had said, "Okay, thanks for the check. Um, here's what we did," and and then you could, if you knew what to look for, you could use something like variations in timing to acquire information about the key that was in use on the ipsec hmm. crypto channel that kind of thing yeah so so it, i mean really what you want to do is you want to scrap this and just write it clean um otherwise you'll never really know for sure unless we can get statements from the people who say oh you know we have no idea why Gregory Perry's making these allegations they're completely bogus on the other hand wouldn't the authors say that even if they, right. if that was true?
0: That's no proof. But the, that's yeah. why I love open source. You can verify this. You can look at it.
1: You can tell. Yeah. Although, I, I mean, so many times I've drawn the, I've drawn the, I've used the example of debugging when I've got a, when I've got when I've, when my code is doing something that that is unexpected as the author of it. And even somebody else looking over my shoulder can, we can like be looking at the code and it looks fine because with, with code comes sort of an implicit assumption that what I've written is what, I, what it's going to do, which is why there's this strange phenomenon when you're stepping through the code in a debugger, you can come right up to the problem. And it's not until it actually happens in front of you that you go, oh, you know, I mean, it's a left shift instead of a right shift. You know, I can I can know that I mean right shift, but I wrote down left shift. And so it's so easy to just sort of have your eye step past it with the assumption that it's correct. So it's similarly, you know, analyzing code for To discover something that a programmer deliberately did and deliberately obscured. I mean, presumably, if this was really done, it was done in a very clever way. So, I could fully believe that someone, if this was done, could have taken a block of this as a module and just lifted it in and moved it into other, repurposed it into other operating systems... Where it was a functional module known to do the following, and it really could have spread. So, anyway, we're at the we're at the beginning of a very interesting story that we'll certainly be following for our listeners as more develops. I'm going to call BS on it, but we'll see. <laughs> we, obviously <laughs> Again, we have to check. I, I, I I'm with you. I mean, it, the whole thing. How you know? How could? I mean, first of all, this I don't imagine that the FBI would pay open source developers to do this. The the, the Because I, this is not the kind of thing you can keep secret. I'm sure they pay commercial developers to do it, but that's why I recommend open source for
0: stuff like this.
1: Well, or you could imagine that they would have somebody working for them right. on the inside. Right. Maybe, yeah, committing that you know? way, yeah. I mean, that's the way you would imagine this would happen if... If that was really going to be done, so you know. Anyway, it it, it is a big story. I wanted to address it for our oh, listeners, absolutely, yeah. Uh, and we'll certainly follow it. Yeah. Um, many people have have written to ask about the denial of service attacks um, on all kinds of oh, yeah. entities who have been involved in many different ways, whether they were DNS supplier, well, to uh, being uh, involved with wikilinks. With WikiLeaks, whether they were DNS suppliers, uh, you know, uh, donation carriers, you know, PayPal, whether they were hosting providers—I mean, pretty much anybody who's in any way been associated with WikiLeaks, who has attempted to distance themselves from WikiLeaks as a consequence of this huge controversy, has found themselves the victim of denial-of-service attacks of varying strengths, durations, and so forth. Um, what's interesting is that a a simple-to-use denial-of-service attack tool called LOIC, which is an acronym for Low-Orbit Ion Cannon, um, was created, and Loic operates in a in a very well known and almost traditional fashion for a botnet. It hooks on to an IRC channel. It joins an IRC channel in in an IRC chat room, and then the bot herder or or um, and and that's called the hive mind, the Loic hive mind. Um, then somebody who is controlling that channel issues commands which will be received by all of the bots that are listening in this IRC chat room and um, and will then go attack whatever target has been given. Now, at one point, as many as 1200 different bot clients were logged into the chat room. Um, the problem for them is, that they're making TCP connections, which which are not spoofable. There's no way to spoof those. Meaning that that anybody under attack is seeing standard Internet TCP connections from these bots. So, um, without getting it all into the the politics and ethics of this, I want to stay out of that question. Um, it is the case that anyone who is contributing, who feels they're contributing their bandwidth for the sake of of the, the anonymous group, as it's called, that is attacking people um, a- around this whole issue, their IPs are exposed, and several of them have already been pursued and, I mean, legally pursued. So it, it's it's certainly the case that this is not a sophisticated DDoS client. Um, many people have been surprised that websites have been so easily brought down by a relatively small number of clients. This is only in the low thousands um, and high hundreds. And so one thing worth mentioning is that that denial of service attacks are not difficult to launch. I mean, they are pretty easy to launch, in fact, and and sites are relatively easily brought down. I mean, we had MasterCard brought down, Visa brought down. Um, Amazon was having trouble, um, v- smaller uh DNS sites that have been involved have been brought down. Um Panda Labs has a really nice blog that has been following virtually blow by blow. They they've they've been watching the management of these botnets associated with the WikiLeaks attacks. Um, and um, I created a short URL because theirs, unfortunately, is really long. Um, uh, bit.ly, so it's a bit.ly URL bit.ly slash lowercase h, lowercase y, uppercase g, uppercase l, lowercase p, lowercase y. That expands to the Panda Security Panda Labs blog. I also uh, checked with Google, and at, at the time, at this time, if you put in Panda Labs, space, DDoS, space, WikiLeaks, um, I th- and I think I put in LOIC, it'll all- you can also find it through Google. But if anyone's interested, it is fascinating. They have essentially a complete chronology, a detailed chronology of who's been attacked, how hard the attack was, how much, how long they were held off the net, when they got back on, and, and so forth. So uh, if anyone's curious, uh, Panda Labs has done a great job of tracking that um, from the beginning, um, which is, you know, interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> there's even, there's a JavaScript version of this LOIC the wow. low orbit ion cannon that tells you so something <laughs> you could even run it on your iPhone wow. if if you wanted to and and I'll mention also that you know I, when I was visiting Mark Thompson a couple of weeks ago and at, at his place out in Phoenix he's got I think it's 15 megabits of upload on his cable modem you know he's paying for a, a high bandwidth cable modem connection but, I mean, that's a ton of bandwidth. Sure. You get a few For, hundred of those, boom. Exactly. That adds up very fast. Yeah. And that's that's much more bandwidth than most websites are used to dealing with on, a, you know, like on a saturated, focused all at once sort of basis. Um, IE9's uh, um, uh, Microsoft's forthcoming Internet Explorer 9, which is currently in beta, I just wanted to mention, does have a do not track technology of some sort, it oh, will be neat. present. It'll be present in the browser. It'll be disabled by default, but it will be something that people can turn on. And I'm sure that we'll have something shortly um, in in um, Mozilla's Firefox as well. And apparently, Chrome's security model is causing developers some bit of problem just for you know implementing these kinds of things. We do have something called not script for Chrome which I wanted to mention that I know of I've not taken a look at it yet but many of our listeners have said hey Steve we know how much you are in love with with no script for Firefox well there is not script for Chrome and the developer mentions that it it he had to jump through some hoops in order to implement this for Chrome because Chrome's own high security barriers were you know fighting the kind this kind of functionality. It wasn't something that was easy for him to shoehorn into Chrome, hmm. but he's he's managed to. And of course so, this
0: is going to become more relevant with the Chrome OS, which is entirely based on the browser.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Um there was a note also uh that uh say that the SAN security letter had saying that just that the UAE Um, United Arab Emirates authorities can now decrypt BlackBerry communications with a court order. Um, And their little blurb said that the United Arab Emirates Telecommunications Regulatory Authority now has the key for BlackBerry services. This means that the authorities can decrypt and monitor BlackBerry communications after obtaining a court order. BlackBerry's parent company, Research in Motion, RIM, has reached a similar agreement with authorities in India. Well, there was a link in the Sands article to a website who, that, with, a, with a broken link or a broken page. When I clicked on it to follow up, because I was I didn't understand what this meant. This says that they have a key, but they require a court order. But if they have the key, they wouldn't require a court order. <laughs> or it's not clear what it is they have to go through to use their key. I mean, I I I, I wanted to get something more rigorously technical than what what was in the Sands newsletter. At the same time, I didn't want to ignore this note because this is interesting to me from a from a crypto technology standpoint. So as more is known about this, I will let our listeners know because we've been following this whole oh, issue. Yeah. Of, of which I find really interesting about what it's taking to do this. We know that if software is installed in in Rim's servers, then it's possible for Rim as a man in the middle to perform the decryption. But Rim has said that so long as people are using the corporate servers, which have no dependence on Rim at all, that the various entities the government entities would have to go to the corporate endpoints and and see about installing some sort of third-party technology there or or rims technology in those third-party servers anyway this is a just a huge mess but um, as, as we know more we'll we'll certainly let people know and I did want to note that unfortunately double click and Microsoft that is the the Advertising server, rad.msn.com, were both found to be serving malware advertisements recently.
0: Yeah, I saw that. Wow.
1: Yes. Malware got into the advertising stream. Um, This was a banner ad which was essentially using heavily obfuscated JavaScript to exploit at least 7 previously patched vulnerabilities in Adobe Reader in Java and in Internet Explorer in order to ins- install something called HDD Plus which was sort of semi ransomware it would inform users that their seri- that their system had serious errors which required the premium version of HDD Plus in order to fix their system, so wow. um, that was found and fixed, and of course Google jumped on it immediately. Google being the parent of DoubleClick, and are trying to come up with a way to prevent this from happening uh, in the future, which of course would be a, a good thing to prevent. Yes, and quickly a little bit of a rata. Um, my my own Sue, um, who is uh, handles sa- sales support for GRC messed up her filters in Eudora Monday evening and yesterday morning uh, wrote to me and said, Steve, I don't seem to be getting any email. Well, it turns out that uh, I I went down to see what was going on and she'd misimplemented some spam filtering, which it turns out triggered a bug in Eudora, which was deleting any email that she received in such a way that it didn't even go into the trash where oh. we could have recovered it. It just went into nowhere into oblivion. So I wanted any listeners to know if anyone had sent us email for any reason between Monday night and around Tuesday at noon Pacific time, uh, we never got it. Unfortunately, I mean, it's, it's nowhere. Uh, it's it, uh, the way we had, her email configured. We've changed that now, but it was pulling it off the server forever and and deleting it. So we didn't receive it. I'm, I'm sure. I mean, we feel awkward about this because we hate not responding to anyone who sent email to us. Um, but it just it was lost. So these things you know, happen. It, it does. Now, it never happened to us before, and now we've made we've taken measures so it won't happen again. Uh, we're we're now keeping email on the server, even for Sue's accounts. Uh, mine, I I do have kept on the server, but um, Sue was just deleting hers. So that's why I like IMAP. Of course, now. if you
0: had IMAP, you probably would have deleted the originals. So never mind.
1: Uh, exactly, yeah. it could <laughs> happen too. Yeah. Uh, also, um, the blog for Adobe tracking the development of Flash. I mentioned before that Flash version ten point two was supposed to be using much less processing power and I'd mentioned that in the context of my own exp- ex- experiments with flash on a battery powered laptop where I was surprised when flash was jumping around on the screen how much battery my you know my laptop was burning its estimate of like oh you got 8 hours left dropped down to like an hour and a half uh when i had flash running in the browser the good news is we're beginning to see some metrics from this, and they're claiming to use as little as 10% of the previous CPU and system power under this new version 10.2. So the good news is they're really focusing on power consumption for, as a consequence of wanting to get flash onto handheld devices, and it looks like they're being very successful with that. And I got a kick out of something that I ran across in the mailbag. I just wanted to share with everybody. A listener of ours, Mac Morris, says, thanks again for the great podcast. And tell Leo that I think his Irish accent is terrible, is (laughs) is the best of all the ones I've heard so far.
0: (laughs) Is this guy Irish? (laughs) Because that's the first problem. Maybe not. Maybe not. (laughs) I love it. We have an Adobe Gotcha of the week coming up too in the uh, in the question speaking of Adobe.
1: Yes, we do. Um, I did want to share a fun Spinright story. Uh, I, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago when I didn't do a Spinright story that I, I wanted to uh, I had run across a number of really fun ones. Uh, this one is Spinright saves the Broadcast. Um, our listener Sean McStay says hello, Stephen Leo. I work for a mobile television production company that specializes in sports broadcasts. On Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving, I was working an NBA broadcast in Oklahoma City. About 12 hours into the day, my technical director called me to the production area of the truck and asked me to listen to something strange. There is a touchscreen computer that is the user interface for the production switcher that switches the entire broadcast. This computer was making a strange high-pitched sound, but otherwise seemed to be fine. The technical director and I both thought that a worn-out cooling fan was probably the source. Other than the annoying noise it was making, I really didn't think much about it, and just made a mental note to get a replacement fan. Well, I bet you know where this is going. (laughs) After, (laughs) After returning from our meal break the technical director let me know that the touchscreen computer had locked up. Thankfully, he had already loaded his entire show into the switcher mainframe and didn't really need the touchscreen computer for the rest of the day. Now, fearing that it might be something more ominous than a cooling fan, I took the touchscreen computer back to engineering to give it a closer look. It wasn't a cooling fan. The hard drive was the source of the noise. And I knew I was in trouble. We maintain a very expensive service contract on the switcher. And I called the manufacturer in California. Now, realize that it is late Wednesday afternoon, the day before Thanksgiving. I had a show in Pittsburgh on Friday, the day after Thanksgiving. I knew that getting a replacement in time was a very iffy proposition. The manufacturer of the switcher did have a menu panel in hand and was able to get it out that day, but could not promise that I would get it in time on Friday. Now, like all careful truck engineers, I do have other ways for technical directors to get their shows loaded, but it's not convenient for them at all. I also had a pretty recent image of that particular drive, but I thought that if The hard drive was going bad. That image might not do me any good. Friday, Meaning they wouldn't be able to load it on the hard drive. Friday morning in Pittsburgh, I told the technical director that if the computer came up at all, he would need to get his show loaded quickly. I did not trust this machine to remain working for very long. I had a momentary good feeling when the computer made it past the post, the power on self-test, then displayed the Windows splash screen. But my hopes were quickly dashed when the computer blue screened a few seconds after displaying the Windows logo. I sent the technical director back to my engineering computer to load his show, and I started Spinrite working on the menu computer. After about three, or it says about three hours and twenty minutes later, Spinrite had finished. It displayed two unrecoverable sectors, but I didn't, but did not report anything else was amiss. Even though the drive was not making the unpleasant sounds that I had heard in Oklahoma City, I did not have a good feeling about it. To my pleasant surprise, the menu computer booted up and loaded the switcher application without a problem. We went through the whole show without any issues. I'm still surprised that Spinrite was able to take a drive that sounded like a small metal lathe and make it work again, but it did." (laughs) I have since replaced the menu PC with a new one. Yeah. I wanted to acknowledge that your product had bailed me out when I knew that I could not count on getting a replacement in time. Add my name to the list of clients who have been saved by your very functional product. Best regards and happy holidays to you and Leo. Sean McStay, St. Louis, Missouri. Thank you, Sean. I am a little surprised that it worked, actually. Because that sounded like it was a hardware issue. Yeah. Uh, I never knew. Sounds like bearings in the drive with right. that kind of a high-pitched sound. Right. And uh, that could create some vibration that would cause the heads to have a problem. So glad it got a fix.
0: Yeah. But I think he was right to replace it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who knew how long it
1: would last? And, you know, often spin right is like you use it Band-aid. just to to yeah. pull your butt out of the fire right. one last time. Right. And, and that's all you need. Right. Hey, before we
0: get to our questions, and we've got great ones, uh, I would like to mention briefly... Uh, our good friends at Carbonite. We talk about backup all the time. And I also want to ask you I, you didn't talk about the Gawker story, but did you see the list of passwords? that people yes. were using on Cocker.
1: Number yes. one password
0: is one two three four five six.
1: <laughs> yeah, really creative
0: one. Yeah, kind of kind yeah. of amazing. If you uh, if you you know, I'm certainly not going to say don't don't use Spinrite, but I'll tell you what: if you if you make sure you have good backups, you're not going to be as freaked out when you get that rattling sound coming out of your hard drive. And you will someday lose a hard drive. You will probably someday erase a file you wish you hadn't erased. I talk to people all the time who who think they have good backups and don't. That's why Carbonite is such is such an important part of your overall backup strategy. Carbonite is automatic. It's always backing up when you're online and because it uses 128-bit SSL the entire time, you don't ever have to worry where you are when it's backing up. It's just trickling up that data, keeping it up to date on the Carbonite servers where you can get it back anytime. Just by logging into your Carbonite account. And that means on any computer, anywhere, even on their free iPhone or BlackBerry apps, you can get to your data. So you're never without your data. Carbonite's off site. So if something horrible happens and you even lose, you know, your your main computer and your backups, you've always got that good copy up in the cloud. And you could try it free right now just by going to Carbonite.com. You don't need to use a credit card or anything, just this the offer code security now. Carbonite.com offer code security now. If you decide to buy it after your 2-week trial, you'll get 2 months free if you use the offer code security now. Now that's that's on top of the already very reasonable $55 a year for unlimited backup. All this to all the personal stuff on your internal drive on the cloud safe as houses. I love Carbonite. I use it. I trust my daughter's uh, computer to it when she went to college, that's what I put on the laptop. I want you to try it free for two weeks. Carbonite.com. Offer code SECURITY NOW. And now, ladies and gentlemen, 12 questions, good and true, for our friend Steve Gibson. Are you ready, my friend? And comments from our listeners, too, Comments, so questions, yeah. thoughts, Thanks. Adobe gotcha of the week, that kind of thing. <laughs> Good stuff. Starting with Robbie Nelson, Raleigh, North Carolina. He says he may have found an alternative to the PayPal virtual credit card, which we were bemoaning the loss of. Uh, Paypal's discontinued those uh, one-time-only, one-use credit cards. Uh, he says it's called ShopShield. I may be your biggest fan, Steve, and I appreciate everything you do, especially the great Right, I just love you, man, he says in caps. To be more specific and to the point, on October 7th, 2010, episode 269, listener feedback number 102. I use the GR search, GRC search. <laughs> you sent out a clear question to our listeners who are spread far and wide. If anyone knows of a replacement... Uh, of the PayPal plugin, which was discontinued. Well, I ran across this site, ShopShield.net. I did some online checking, and ShopShield is highly regarded by the Identity Theft Resource Center. Uh, he says it's a nonprofit nationally recognized for providing education and resources to prevent identity theft, idtheftcenter.org. Uh, they review it on their site. He says, I listen to each episode every week, but I don't remember any feedback about a PayPal plugin replacement. Just wanted to see what you think of ShopShield. And if any other listeners have similar
1: findings, keep up the great work and remember,
0: I love you, man.
1: That's cute. That's cute. (laughs) So I wanted to share this immediately with our listeners. Uh, There is nothing I want more than a one-time credit card solution Um, I have not yet. I just ran across this this morning as I was pulling these together for the Q&A. So I've had no chance to do any research into the site. It looks legitimate. I mean, on the surface, it looks like a good thing. And everything they're saying sounds right Um, there. I don't know quite how they accomplish what they say they're accomplishing because they talk about protecting your name and your your mailing address and shipping address and like all personal information. And that's like, well, okay, how can you do that? Because for example, Google's, um, uh, I can't, I'm blanking on the name. Google's Google, Google checkout, Checkout, um, w- which I use and like uh, because they're, you know, in sites that offer that it's one click and Google does, she does perform the, the transaction with someone who accepts google checkout right. what we need is a system that where someone who doesn't like accept shopshield can still be used so it, uh, i presume it
0: think, they use credit card numbers i don't know i'm looking at it right now
1: yeah i have not pursued it you need to you know there's a free trial and um, uh, believe me by this time next week i'll yeah. <laughs> i will have a tune up on shopshield i did want to share it because it seems like a men- good idea it really does. Many yeah. people have asked for it. So um, I've got my fingers crossed, and I'll give everyone a tune-up next week. In the meantime, anyone who else who's interested is welcome to, to do their own pursuit of this yeah, as well. Yeah, we'd love to hear what you think.
0: Get your feedback. Question two, an anonymous listener listener with a, a great question. Steve, thank you for your podcast. i probably listened to all of them. I find them informative over the years. I've been involved in discussions with my work colleagues about... Which encryption algorithm to use on a low-powered CPU? It's run running roughly uh, one MIP, which is not very much in uh, in modern terms. Um, one of my colleagues suggested RC4. It's simple to implement; won't take up too many CPU cycles. The device will be battery powered, so we need to keep the number of instructions to a minimum. What are your thoughts on RC4?
1: Well, that. this is sort of interesting relative to the discussion we had last week of RFID, RFID crypto. Mm-hmm. Um, to, uh, essentially, to, um, to to tie this into that, what I was saying was that an RFID chip, which simply blasted out a fixed ID every time it got pinged, was certainly fell far short of, of my own requirements for. For the crypto that I would allow to have implanted in me, because we really needed, we need a real crypto. We needed something where uh, no snooper could just listen to an RFID chip um, emitting its ID and then clone that and emit the same thing. So that requires some some kind of useful crypto, um, and in a in something which is being powered by. By the radiation being emitted by a reader, you need to have something also very low power, very low computational overhead. Um, RC4 is a is even now to this day a really good cipher. It got a bad rap from its use in the very first. Um, Implementation of Wi-Fi crypto, the so-called WEP, WEP wired Wired equivalent privacy protocol, but it wasn't RC's fault that 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 it um, that WEP was so badly broken. Uh, RC4 is very simple; it's well known. It's a trivial algorithm and when it's used properly, meaning that you discard the first chunk of pseudo-random data that it provides and you, you're you very careful about the way you seed the algorithm every time, if those criteria are met, the stream that it produces is extremely robust. It produces a pseudo-random stream of data which you then XOR with your plain text to create the cipher text. So I really do think that, again, as long as somebody who really understands crypto is the implementer of this, I think it makes a lot of sense for, for a, a low power use, you know, strong crypto in a, in a system where you have either low CPU power, low battery power, n- n- low speed, you know, whatever it is. Um, there's nothing wrong with RC4 as long as it's, uh, as long as it's used
0: correctly. You give it RC level
1: of approval.
0: <laughs> I do. Yes, you do. Lance Reichert, itinerant engineer in upstate New York says, I need to com- convince customer service that emails public. Recently, one of my credit card companies had the idea to show me how convenient paperless statements would be by giving me a temporary enrollment. One of the, quote, features of these paperless statements was a monthly email announcing the availability of my online statement and detailing my outstanding balance minimum due and due date. Mm. They were agreeable enough to remove me from the program immediately upon request, but were unwilling to accept that the practice of putting customers' balances and due dates in emails breached those customers' financial privacy and ran afoul of consumer the uh, Consumer Data Protection Act. They seem to think that since I had to log into my email server to collect my email, it was as secure as my email password. <laughs> is there any compelling argument to offer to them that between their server and mine, email is publicly available to anyone who cares to read it? Signed,
1: Lance. You know, um, I've had email like this from our listeners before. I mean, the, we have, of course created a an educated listenership yes, yeah. of people who who really get this stuff and they find themselves frustrated when they're trying to explain to people who are offering insecure services that you know the nature of that insecurity and the one thing that occurred to me the 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 example of this that has made headlines to such a great degree was google's inadvertent sniffing of Wi-Fi globally as they roamed around collecting um, their their geolocation data for for Google Maps and other geolocation services and so what what Lance for example or anyone else could mention is that that email is not secured that even though the login may be secured it is, Typically the case that with your typical email client, the contents is going across the internet and maybe in the air unsecured. And so, the for example, if Google were, happened to be or somebody else happened to be wandering around sampling what was in the air when this customer statement with this personal information was being retrieved by the customer... It could be sucked in just in, in the same way as, as all the other personal information um, had been collected inadvertently by Google. So, I mean, this is in that same classification of the kind of stuff that any third-party monitoring would be able to pick up. I, know, I I don't know if that'll make sense to somebody who refuses to understand that their service is not secure. But, you know, it, it is it is not something that's easy to understand.
0: Well, yeah, I mean I, I'll be honest with you. I don't know how much of a breach of privacy having somebody see what your balance is. It would be one thing if they sent the credit card number through the uh the mails. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I get all my balances via email. I
1: don't... It's funny too, because there there have been I, I saw just recently someone who did not have an e commerce capability who was taking credit card information sort of manually. Ooh, ooh. Well and they said send it in send your card. In like four separate pieces of email. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, that's better than all at once. But yeah, still, somewhat. certainly
0: not very secure. Yeah, You know, they, uh, and I presume this is secure, but I, I just got a little dongle that you plug into your um, iPhone or Android phone into the um, audio pieces from a company called Square, squareup.com. And uh, you, it's a credit card reader. And I guess it turns it into audio. And then you, you have software on the phone and... Uh, without signing up for merchant services or anything, you just sign up for an account for them. And they, of course they take a, a cut. You can use credit cards like that. You know, I could I could walk up to you and you could swipe your card onto my iPhone or Android phone.
1: Yeah, you can imagine like in all kinds of like little, little trade shows or exactly. like far farmer's markets. Precisely. Sort of, you know, scenarios. Jennifer, yeah. my wife, told me about it. She said, I was at the
0: craft fair. Do you know about this thing? She said, everybody's swiping credit cards. I said, yeah, it's really, uh, it's the guy, it's uh, Jack Dorsey, the guy who started Twitter. Very interesting. Uh, All right. We got three questions that are all kind of about the same, about the RFID stuff. So I'll just read them all at once. Okay. And then uh, withhold your applause till the last of them. Didier Stevens, our good friend, didier uh, in Brussels, suggests an RFID tag and a wristband of a watch. Steve, I know someone who keeps his subcutaneous RFID tag lodged into the wristband of his watch, and you don't need to inject it. He always has it with him. There's no surgery involved. That's one way to do it. Uh, Efrain in Miami, Florida, thinks an RFID-enhanced cell phone might be an idea. I think rather than implanting a chip in our bodies, what about a chip in our cell phones? With the chip being in our cell phones, it can handle complex things because it's a powered device. It seems to be a logical choice. I think we can all agree that our phones are always within reach and more likely for a company to give you a cell phone with a tracking chip than ask you to get it implanted surgically. And then Eric (laughs) in Palm Coast, Florida, says uh, concerning uh, RFID uh, and having the public key advertised – I know this may be unlikely for most of us, but could you not be the trigger for your own assassination? While this may be an extreme example, could we not be targeted in other many less sinister ways as well? Additionally, much of what you thought would be cool was available to Bluetooth users a decade ago. You walk into a room, your music would resume, I, your Mac would unlock. Yeah, and that was that's from a sailing clicker using Bluetooth, presumably a l- little less secure, though. You know, and and uh, I mentioned this NF see Neil Feared Communications, in the new Google phone, similar to that, right? As we talked yeah, so, about in the beginning. So
1: certainly, many people um, suggested alternatives to implantation. Which, I mean, I completely agree. Installing something in your body is marginally radical. The the point that I made last week was people are doing it. They, oh yeah, you know. There are hobbyists um, who are at, on bulletin boards actively talking about, you know, where the best, impl- you know, location is to 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 put the implant. Um, so one of our listeners has a, um, I think a a, um, a wife or girlfriend who is an acupuncturist who was concerned that the location that we've been talking about, sort of in the web of your hand between your thumb and your first finger, which is where it seems to be a popular location. That's a acupuncture point that's related to your upper intestines or something. So maybe that wouldn't be the best location. I mean, I don't know. Um, so, so I did like Eric's reminder about Bluetooth because if you if you wanted to back away from installing from you know implanting something in your body, um, all of our phones are Bluetooth enabled. Um, and it is certainly the case that you could turn Bluetooth on, on your phone, not have it discoverable. So you don't have that, that concern. And then, you know, in the scenarios like I was talking about, like being able to walk up to your garage door and just press a button and not have to use a key or a keypad or just have your front door of your house unlocked whenever you're nearby, um, Certainly a cell phone is is becoming virtually ubiquitous for all of us. You know, we've got one on us where pretty much wherever we are, the downside is that it can be taken from you. You, you, you could lose it or you could imagine somehow if someone really wanted to get their hands on it, they could, you know, snatch it from you or, or something where it's much less easy to do um, that with something embedded in your body. On the other hand, uh, I mentioned last week, you know, you wouldn't want to have someone, you know, cut this thing out of you violently if they, if, <laughs> if they, they wanted knew, to. If they knew it was there. If they knew it was there, right. so if they had some access to it. So, so I guess, yeah, there are, certainly there are alternatives to embedding it. The, and, you know, and the idea of, of just sticking it on your wristwatch, I think is a good one. I talked about some silicone bands that, you know, like, like the, 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 um, um, uh, Lifestyle. Uh, I don't think. I think a lot of people exactly, don't, 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 don't wear don't don't wear wristwatches anymore. That's, exactly. As a matter of fact, I'm still a wristwatch wearer, I am too, but but I but I old. Most of my friends are yeah. no longer using wristwatches. They're constantly checking their phone to see right. what time it is if they're concerned. Right. But they're they're just not wearing a wristwatch anymore. Yeah. I think wristwatches are kind of becoming you well. they jewelry passe. now. They're no it's longer They're no
0: longer functional. They're just jewelry. Yeah. Um. There, were, I remember Mex, there were uh, some Mexican legislators uh, back when there were a lot of kidnappings going on in Mexico, uh, who got RFID tags in, in, implanted in case, I guess, in case their body should turn up somewhere and uh, not be identified.
1: Um, Tom, um, who did the podcast, both of his dogs have RFID oh, yeah. tags. So do our animals. animals. Yeah, yeah, and um, and I know that there's a nightclub in Brazil that tags its members. I guess if you join the nightclub, then you can be tagged That's and so then funny. you know, walk in the back door or, or automatically get in or, you know, prove your membership that way. Better so a password. <laughs> you know, I have to say though, I'm, I'm 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 glad that Eric reminded me about Bluetooth. I could I could imagine you know that being you know an answer for me sure. for although, you know, it'd be a little tough to hack my car. It'd be nice if my car knew me. Um but certainly a laptop, my you can imagine adding something to a front door lock or, or even a garage door so that if if this particular Bluetooth radio was, I mean, it's, like, like it's got the right amount of range. It's, I don't have to go invent, you know, new technology from scratch and so forth. So and that's sort of a possibility. I'm pretty
0: sure uh, Schlag makes, the lock company makes a Bluetooth-enabled ah, door lock. Interesting. Yeah. Well, check. Yeah. If it's RFID anyway, if not Bluetooth, some sort of RF technology. Dustin B. in Seattle, Washington, wonders about controlling bandwidth. Steve, I'm aware this isn't in regards to a previous episode. Therefore, it's not feedback per se, but I was pondering a question I felt you were the perfect person to ask. How do ISPs limit bandwidth to specific households? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I hear so much about digital, meaning everything is either on or off, no in-between, so... Clearly, the physical connection to my house isn't changing. I'm able to change my service speed with my provider without getting a new router. So what are they? what is Comcast doing when, when they say, now you're 20 megabits per, per second instead of 5 megabits per second? It's the same connection. Thanks for all the podcasts. You guys started the same year I graduated high school and headed to college in 04 and it made me realize I needed to switch from a business degree to web applications. You know, I was at Google a couple of nights ago for their media event, and I met several Googlers who said, uh, that they listened or watched shows that you and I did and others did. And that's how they got into technology. I met one guy, said, I was in politics wow. and I used to, I used to listen, I listened to your shit, I used to twit. And I got, in, I realized I loved technology more than politics. And now I'm working at Google. So we do make a little bit of an impact, Steve.
1: That's neat. Yeah. Um, okay. So I mentioned Mark Thompson, my buddy in Phoenix, who's got an insane amount of bandwidth at his home. Um, the way, Comcast and others function and and we're and this is sort of within the realm of cable modems, is that the, the the coaxial cable itself has an insane bandwidth capacity. I mean if you if you consider the the idea that over a coax cable is flowing how many television channels right? I mean the, the, and, a, and a TV signal, I mean even HD, is an, an insane amount of data. And, and most of these have all switched to digital now. So that this is digital data and an amazing amount of digital data flowing over this coax. So essentially, you can think of the pipe that's connected to the outside side of your cable modem as being just massive, I mean, it's a huge pipe that's capable of, of of carrying a phenomenal amount of data. So, all the Comcast or any other cable modem management provider has to do is tell the cable modem how much of that torrent of bandwidth to sip from. Essentially, it's the, there are channels um, and. And the, the state-of-the-art cable modems you're, are able to be scaled in terms of sort of how many of those channels of, of data they're going to be sipping from at one time. And it can be scaled, you know, up to whatever the maximum data handling capability of the cable modem is. So even though, yes, you're receiving ones and zeros, and, and there is some some digital granularity to to the the rate of upload and download because the pipe on the other side is so huge that this this coaxial connection can potentially carry so much data you just tell the device the modem that, that's that's hooked to it how much of that to take and it's able to
0: there's a uh, widely used and well-known uh, Linux program that's a proxy called squid that is used to do this and uh, we used to help people set up squid servers in their house because their roommates are sucking too much of their bandwidth <laughs> and uh, for a while i think we were doing that here we we uh, i think that one of our routers i think it was a running the tomato firmware had that capability and we had we had limited our router for our visitors to 900 kilobits so that they wouldn't kill our bandwidth yep so uh, there's there's it's that's a fairly easy and well-known application we still do that.
1: Yeah, there, there are, now that's sort of different. Um, um there's like bandwidth shaping and yeah. bandwidth throttling and that's a, there you're um you you may have a a high capacity single link where you're wanting to throttle the bandwidth of different users yeah. within the link right. and for example you're doing it by By IP or by by port or 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 whatever, and there it actually is a little tricky to get TCP, which is our the protocol, or even even trickier for UDP. um, Sometimes what they what they're actually doing is they're queuing the packets and allowing them to pile up a little bit because TCP will notice the delay. In in the connection and slow itself down as it notices that it's not getting acknowledgments oh, back clever. from yeah. from the other side as, as as quickly. So yeah, it's it's it turns out that it it actually is is su- surprisingly complicated to throttle TCP connections in a in a smooth way. But it's a problem that's been solved. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about Chrome OS. Question eight: Ty,
0: Nashville, Tennessee. uh, He says, I love listening to the podcast. It's one of my greatest resources for technical learning and growth. I know it's a little early to tell, but what do you think of the security of Google's Chrome OS? I have the uh, Google CR48 kind of demo laptop that they sent out right here uh, with me. I've been playing with this. And actually, I talked to some Google, the product manager, about this very subject. He says, I know it's early, but what I've read makes it sound like it'll keep local storage to a minimum and only allow downloading of a small subset of file types, meaning it will not even be running executable code outside of the browser. I've even read it will monitor system files for changes on startup. That's right. It actually does a, uh, a hash on the firmware and the system files, and if they're modified, it goes, whoa! Um, and repair them if it sees any modifications. It, also sa- it almost sounds too good to be true from a security standpoint, not privacy, of course, since, <laughs> since Google's <laughs> running the show and users are required to log in with a Google ID, even to use the system, and that's also true. Can you think of any obvious drawbacks to the platform? Or have you heard of anything that would give you pause in giving it a try? Thanks for your work and passion for technology. I talked a little bit. I mean, that, what, that's one of the main points of uh, Chrome OS. Everything, you know, uh, the, for instance, a sandbox flash, they sandbox the reader. Uh, not everything is yet sandboxed, but that's
1: their goal. So that's really what they're trying to do. Um, Every he tab starts, is
0: sandboxed.
1: He starts off saying, "He um, you know it's a little early to tell, but what do I think about it? Right. What I what I think is, you know, everyone who listens to the podcast knows that you know one of our fundamental um, lemmas of of security is that it's not something that can be stated; it's only something that can be proven, and so it inherently takes time. What I love about this is that it's been designed with security awareness from the beginning, and I couldn't ask for more. Yeah. So whereas whereas late Windows legacy. Unfortunately, or the Internet's legacy, unfortunately, predates security completely. You know, for example, where DNS, there was no concern, no thought about security back when the Internet's fundamental architecture was being created. So it's, it's always had that problem. Similarly, Windows was designed as a, you know... Single user system that then became networked, then went on, you know, to be part of this global network and has suffered, well, as we just saw. In 2010, Microsoft broke their record of security vulnerabilities, even now, years after they've been security aware and Ballmer's been, you know, stomping around on stage proclaiming that their operating systems are the securest ones they've ever made. Well, you know, they just broke their record this year, number of security Patches, So, so I couldn't be more pleased about this. Now, I did also read, though, that there is technology, and I don't remember the name of it, but it allows Chrome to run native code. And it's like, oops, um, that sounds a little scary. Um, Someone is pushing for more performance, and I'm hoping that it will be... Sufficiently sandboxed that running native code rather than scripting um, can be made safe. Scripting being inherently interpreted, you you potentially have more control over it than you do if you're running native. But also being scripted, you've got a performance hit. So um, I just you know I love what Google is doing. I love the idea that because they had the advantage of starting so late on this, they they have. They've been able to, and and because they know that nothing matters more to us than security of this, the idea of offering this as a secure platform is really compelling. So I've got my fingers crossed and I'm holding my breath that it ends up being proven to be as secure as they have designed it to be. Yeah. But the fact that they have designed it to be sure gives it a head start. Yes.
0: Yes, there's certainly their intent. It's really and I love the st- fact that things like system files and firmware are... Um, hashed and protected from modification yeah i think that's that's i mean that now you're really starting to pay some serious attention to this um number nine christian conover in annapolis maryland wonders whether a one-time password model would work for rfid tags i've been listening to your discussions on rfid tags which sound very intriguing you did mention some security concerns naturally But the benefits and use cases of such technology do sound appealing. What I I started to realize as I was listening is that some of the uses sound similar to how I use my YubiKey. This got me thinking. Maybe the YubiKey model is exactly the solution to many of the concerns around RFID tags. It's already an open protocol and an authentication standard, which uh, can be implemented by anyone. So it would take care of the need for a standard to be developed. It could be set to issue a one-time password at each use. So that somebody trying to clone your chip, with a, your chip with a reader wouldn't get much benefit as all they get from the read was that single instance of OTP, one-time password. Uh, plus, it would give the user the ability to control authorization of use by requiring them to conform a, or confirm a certain device or location to be allowed access and be able to revoke it at any time. You could easily send a text message or email to somebody when authorization is needed so they could reply to and within seconds a new authorization rule could be created on the fly. Is it possible... To do that with the way RFID tags work, or have I missed a technical detail that would preclude this? Seems like a proven secure authentication method and a natural choice for a technology like this. Thanks for a fantastic show, Avid Listener. Wednesdays are now one of the more exciting days of my week. Take care, Christian. What's this? Um, It seems like there's not enough uh, computational
1: juice in an RFID tag, is there? Uh, um, the problem actually is that a one-time password requires that as some way of everyone knowing synchronization what, yes yes, as some way for everyone knowing that you've used that password and so it can't be used again the in my in my use model for you know why it would be intriguing to implant something it's that I'd love my laptop to know me, my garage door, my car, my phone, you know, different devices. It would be nice to have a, you know, physical proximity acknowledgement. But those are inherently, or at least in some cases, you know, my front door, not on the network, not not attached to a global network. So for one time, the whole the whole concept of a one-time password model the yubikey for example is that when we're authenticating with a yubikey we are we're connecting you know the 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 device to which we're authenticating has a a real-time connection back to a central server and any any potential device to which we want to authenticate has to have a, a real-time connection to a central server so that essentially what we really have in our YubiKey or we would have in our RFID would be a counter. That counter would be encrypted and that would produce the one-time password. So the value in that counter is being, is being maintained at the central server so that the server knows the, what the last authentication was and is able to track that counter forward as it advances. That requires everything to which we would authenticate to be tied into that server, so unfortunately, um, the nice as it would be, that really doesn't fit the the, the use model for you know a standalone authentication. Um, you know, something like some sort of cryptographically enhanced RFID does. Unfortunately, I don't think it's a one-time password model.
0: You must have been talking about your uh, your beloved side tabs in Firefox uh, with. <laughs> with uh... With Tom Nick in Thief River says Chrome has side tabs. Side tabs are uh, experimental in Chrome, but you, if you type about colon flags into Chrome, you get a settings page where you can enable a side tabs, a context menu option in the t- in the tabs context menu. So
1: yes, you can do that in Chrome. Is that, I tried is that it one of your
0: and- reasons you don't use Chrome? Is because you like your side tabs?
1: Well, I it's it's I'm in love with side tabs. I've got like seventy five of them open right now and. <laughs> <in. laughs> You know, and I'm not one of those people whose, you know, desktop has, you know, four icons. I I, I don't know what it is. Something These are kind of cool settings. I didn't know. I did not know about this. About yes, they are. Flags. There's a number of cool settings yeah. there. There's one at the very bottom that I that I liked also. Click what, 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 on so a my...
0: blocked plugin to run it. WebGL enables Canvas events. GPU accelerated compositing.
1: That's what it was. It was the other the other GPL technologies yeah. for speeding up CSS rendering stuff. Wow. Enables 3D CSS
0: and higher performance compositing of web pages using your GPU. Uh, and
1: so, instant and so address for example, wow. uh, you, made, you made the comment, Leo, that your... Um, as is mine, uh, your um, uh, widescreen on your most recent right. uh, Mac. Yeah, 16.9 screen.
0: And a lot of computers now have 16.9 screens. Have all this real estate horizontally. And yes. often, uh, like in the MacBook Air, very constrained vertically.
1: Yes. And so um, you might try it. I mean, you, gonna. If, if you enable the first one. Then then go and right-click on a tab. And you'll see the last item on the tab's context menu says something about, vertical tabs or side tabs or something. So enable
0: um, tab overview, is that the one I should enable?
1: It's ver- the very first one. Okay, that's the first one. I've enabled that. Okay. And so now, um, now if you if I right-click view. on the tab, maybe you need to restart. Oh, yeah. Uh, whenever you make a, a, a setting change, it, a button appears at the bottom that restarts oh, Chrome.
0: I should have probably said okay or something. All
1: right. Yeah, it's, uh, it's still enabled. So now what do I do? I do a tab... Right-click on a tab, okay. and the last item in the context menu should say something about side tabs. Okay. Worked, it did work for me, and it immediately moved the tabs over to the side. It's like, oh, this that's, is good. That's neat. Yeah. Well, I'll yeah, play with it a
0: little bit more. It's not it's not doing it for me, but I'll play with it.
1: Yeah. Oh, it says use side tabs, and mine has a check mark on it now. Oh. So, And does that put... All the tabs. Oh yeah. Yep. It it moves. It, create, it creates a nice column on on the left hand side. It it gives you as you would like more vertical right. real estate by moving them off. And I have to say, every time I look at Chrome, I think, "Wow, this is just the cleanest UI." They've done a nice job. It's I I, just-
0: am, I am a Chrome uh, uh, exclusively now. Chrome user. <laughs>
1: Seems pretty quick too. Chrome does. Oh yeah. Snappy. Yeah.
0: Nathan Ramsey from Australia now in London has <laughs> some very nice things to say. Steve, after studying off and on for a couple of months, I just passed my Security Plus exam today. All I can say is it was a tiresome yawn. That's not a negative on security plus, but a positive on security. Now, listening to you week after week has imbued me with the ability to understand words like honeypot, least privilege, DNS spoofability, etc. With the greatest of ease, I was amazed and how much everything you've told us follows, sometimes word for word, with the best practices that I had to study for this exam. It almost felt like you wrote the exam. That's pretty neat. Anyway, I just wanted to thank you and Leo uh, for their, your devotion to such a technically useful show and your commitment to provide nothing short of the best. That's really, uh, I think, an outstanding trademark of Steve. Absolutely committed to uh, Perfection. Kind regards, Nathan. Living in London, UK, but from Australia, where I started listening to you. Well, thank you, Nathan.
1: Yeah, I just wanted—I just ran across. It, I thought, well, that is just the neatest thing that That's you know. know he took his security exam, and it was like, okay, yeah, I know all this already. I hope no. you passed it, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> he, oh, he did. Oh, good. <laughs> so, thank you.
0: We've got our uh, our on, uh, from uh, Ontario, Canada. Our Adobe gotcha tip of the week coming up in a second. Before we do that, I'd like to mention our friends at General Electric. The Ecomagination Challenge is wrapping up. We've got our winners, and they're inviting you to visit com slash challenge so that you can see uh, all of the participants. $200 million GE has committed for entrepreneurs, business innovators, and students. $200 million to invest in great ideas for improving the the way... uh, Energy is produced, transferred, and consumed. Ecomagination.com slash challenge. You can go there and you can see all of the amazing winners. There are three categories here. There's The first is renewable. Uh, GE wants to encourage better ways to integrate renewable energy into the power grid. Uh, the second, uh, you know, that's wind, water, the sun, that kind of thing. Uh, the second is grid efficiency to, to, you know, we've talked a lot about the smart grid. Now they want to call it the digital energy. I mean, they, this is really, uh, not only to improve transparency, but reliability, sustainability, to reduce waste, to give more choices. Um, that's, that's one of GE's big businesses, of course. And so they're very committed to that. And the third investment category, eco homes and buildings, energy consumption is just growing in, especially in this nation. And, uh, Higher energy costs result. You can meet the winners. All of them have come up with great ways to do those three things. $200 million in investment. Ecomagination.com slash challenge. Ecomagination.com slash challenge to uh, learn more. We thank General Electric for supporting this show. And if you haven't watched our Green Tech Today show, which uh, we did in conjunction with General Electric, do give it a try. Uh, some really interesting innovators uh, creating great stuff. It's a series that Dr. Kiki, Becky Worley, and um, most of our staff was involved in, and I, I'm just so proud of it. You can see the uh, uh, Green Tech Today brought to you by General Electric uh, in iTunes or at twit.tv slash GTT. Really proud of the, uh, of the work that uh, our team has done on that. And thank you, General Electric. Uh, for all you've done and the ecomagination challenge ecomagination.com slash challenge now ladies and gentlemen if you will the Adobe gotcha tip of the week Steve I really enjoyed your security now podcast says Jack D of Port Perry Ontario Canada I want to thank you and Leo for a superb job. Let me pass along something I noticed that your listeners should look out for. When I recently updated Adobe Reader from 9.4.1 to the new version 10, which is a big X, Mac style. Unlike previous updates, I suppose because this is a new version number, it Mm -hmm. It re-enabled JavaScript and re-enabled allow opening of non-PDF file attachments with external applications. These are the things you said to turn off. Because you don't need them in a PDF reader, and they're a huge security yep. threat. Yep. So I think all of our listeners and and viewers by now have a, have that turned off in reader. But it turns it back on when you update. Yep. I'm unsure whether allowing these settings uh, is no longer a security threat on this new sandboxed version, but I thought I should point it out. I, you know, I even if
1: it isn't a security threat, turn it off. Exactly. If I mean, the again, one of our other fundamental security rules is if you don't need it and you're not using it, turn it off. Most features, are, features are bad. Yeah. <laughs> features are
0: bad. I like that. Features are bad. Turn it <laughs> off. You don't need it. Well, thank you, Jack D, for pointing that out. I haven't, uh, I don't use Adobe Reader, so I have no
1: idea. Yep, and it caught me by surprise. I checked, and it's yeah, like did the Ooh, same thing. Oh. Yep, absolutely. Those things were back on. It's oh, like, oh, you bad people. That's not good. They just don't get it. Huh? Yeah,
0: no kidding. I mean, there's, they really don't. Very few people need JavaScript or external third-party programs running from a PDF. That's just not. That's an unusual usage.
1: Yeah, and it doesn't I mean and all they are is big, huge security opportun you know, security vulnerability right. opportunities. It's like get those things turned off. So I thought all of our listeners would want to know that had they gone up to version ten to go back into their properties down to trust management and uh remanage their trust. Turn off yeah, remanage your trust, turn off JavaScript and third party apps. Yep.
0: Steve, as usual, a great show. Um Thanks to Tom Merritt for filling in last week. Next week, we don't know. You, you have an idea what we're going to cover, or is it a don't mystery? I don't have any idea. No idea. Uh,
1: it, uh, there, there, there are some things brewing here that may end up you know, grabbing us. We've we may got, talk about uh, that open BSD story. Some big news, yeah. If you want to know more, go
0: to grc.com slash security now. Steve has show notes there. He has 16 kilobit versions for the bandwidth impaired, full transcripts. Thank you, Steve, for paying for those and getting those done grc.com you know while you're at grc browse around because uh, not only is there a ton of free stuff there like the dns benchmarks shields up shoot the messenger decombobulator all of those great programs Steve has written in little tiny teeny weeny assembly code there's also his bread and butter the number one hard drive maintenance utility in the world spinright if you have hard drives you need spinright and you can get it from grc.com watch us do this show every wednesday 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time at live.twit.tv. And if you miss the live broadcast, don't worry. We make it available in audio and video at twit.tv SN or on, on iTunes, on Zoom, anywhere you can get a finer podcasts you found. <laughs> Thank you, Steve Marino. I shall pleasure see you as always, week. and see you next week. Thanks. On Security Now. Security
1: Now.